Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Miriam Ribiat and Chevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming onto the Relief from Grief podcast today. So today we have on with us the author of The Rolling Rabbi, Mrs. Shandel Sines. She is very well-known, well-respected in high school and in seminary in Queens. And she's really an amazing person. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward. So I guess let's start off a little bit with your story. Okay. So I'll give you a little bit of a background as to how I got where I am today so you can understand it in context. Basically, I thought I was regular. I was doing the same kinds of things as all my friends and probably a lot of your listeners as well. Um, I attended the local base school here in Queens. I went to high school here in Queens and also in Brooklyn. And after seminary, I knew that I wanted to marry somebody who was going to learn in Kolel for a few years. And then we would go out to be Marbet's Torah. We would go out to learn and to teach and to help grow other people in addition to ourselves. My father is a musmach of Chafetz Chaim. So I grew up in the Chafetz Chaim Yeshiva system, which definitely has a focus on teaching, learning, growing, and sharing what you know and what you've gained with others who are either less fortunate or going to places where it's not always so easy to be or not as local as you would say, you know, not so in town where you have the benefits of your local pizza shops and, you know, farm stores and whatever else. So I kind of grew up with those ideals. It wasn't foreign to me, even though I was living in Queens. To people in Brooklyn, I was already living out of town. So right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I didn't really know like what out of town meant, but I figured, okay, yeah, I could hear that. And it was like a few years down the road anyways. First, we had to do the, the get married part. Um, <laughs> Say that's important. Right? <laughs> so my husband, Yehuda Symes, grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. So talk about out of town. Wow. Even on today's standards, St. Paul is still out of town. It's twin cities with Minneapolis, which Baruch Hashem now is a, you know, a much more growing community. Their school is bigger. They have a kollel. They have you know, a lot more amenities than there were even 30 years ago. But back when my husband was growing up in you know, the late 60s, early 70s, there was not very much. And his family was an integral part of the community in Minnesota. And my in-laws were very instrumental. They wanted to make sure that there was infrastructure in St. Paul. So my father-in-law was in charge of the, the local the cemetery. He worked with the Hever Kadisha. My mother-in-law worked with the mikvah. My father-in-law was instrumental in bringing a mikvah to St. Paul. They had even a matzah bakery at different points. They did different kinds of fundraisers for the school. There was a wine sale. My father-in-law also had a shul in their house for, for Yamam Narayim. My husband grew up firsthand knowing what it was like to give to the community, to be there for others, to grow up being a representative of what a Torah Jew was, what Shomer Shabbos means. And that was something that he really wanted to do. So when I met him and we talked about Kolel, that, you know, that all lined up, we talked about out of town and that's where we had a little bit of a, we weren't so sure we were on the same page, so to speak, because to me, you know, we talked about out of town. I said, yeah, Chicago, Miami, all very nice places, you know, have family in Chicago, Miami's warm, why not? But he's like, you know, that's like way too in town. Like there's no difference between (gasps) New York and New York. 
And I'm like, okay, you know what? We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So we spent about 10 years in Kolo. We had five children. We had a health crisis along the way, but that's not the subject for now. But Baruch Shah, my husband got smicha and we were looking to, you know, begin the next stage of our lives. You know, what we had, so to speak, been gearing up for, right? And different offers came in and, you know, for various reasons, some weren't right for us. We weren't right for some. And I pretty much resigned myself to one more year of staying in a two-bedroom apartment with five kids on the fifth floor. Oh, my goodness. And then I said, okay, that's it. Last year and then job or no job, you know, we're out. Right, right. <laughs> you know, pretty much that was it. And he had, you know, he gave back an answer to the principal that he was working with for that year. He gave his commitment for the next year. Of course, after we gave the commitment is when we heard about this job offer in Ottawa, Canada. So Ottawa is the capital of Canada. It's two hours from Montreal or four and a half hours about from Toronto. And you probably never really heard of it, but we had heard of it because there were other Chafetz Chaim families that were there already. We knew two or three families that were already there and very close friends of ours were moving that summer to Ottawa. They got jobs in Ottawa. And it was actually my husband's friend, Rabbi Shotkin, who said, you know what, there are more jobs available. You should really go check it out. I think that this might really be what you're looking for. But we had already said yes to my husband's boss. What do you do? He said, just go check it out. You know, it's not a commitment. So we went to check it out. And there were indeed many jobs for my husband to do there. He could work in the local day school. I could teach in the Torah day school, the school that our kids would go to. And there was the community was just like ripe. And they, they were looking for another Ventura to come join the school. In my mind, though, I had two requirements. Number one, I needed a city that would be close enough driving distance to New York because I felt with a growing family, you know, airline tickets would be expensive. I'm the oldest in my family. And I wanted to be able to come home for Simchas and I wanted them to be able to come to us without, you know, having to worry about too much of a financial strain. And at the time, my oldest is a boy and I had four girls after that. So in my mind, I figured, you know, a boy could go away for yeshiva, but it wasn't unheard of. And I figured, okay, but for my girls, who sends away their girls for high school, right? I'm not sending away my girls. Like there had to be a girl's high school in the community. So Ottawa had that. Shmuley, my oldest, was in second grade. My daughter, Asna, was in first grade. And everyone, you know, from a year till about age seven or so. Figured perfect. Everything lined up. And we moved up to Ottawa. And it started out really, really beautiful. This, we felt like we were really living our dream, that this is what, you know, our Rebbeim had talked to us about. This is what we had, you know, worked on ourselves to do. We, my husband got, threw himself into teaching big time and he was teaching full time. He was teaching Talmud Torah in the afternoon. We lived, there were a few different sides of town and we chose to live in the side of town where most of his students lived because this way we could have them over for Shabbos. Pretty much, we just went right into it, you know, starting with, I think, the very first sukkahs. Each night of Chalamite, there was a sukkahs party for a different one of his classes. Hanukkah every night was a Hanukkah party for every one of his classes. Shabbatones, big and small, I was teaching. We were becoming part of the community, and he was becoming really, really very popular. You know, as the years went on, like, we really developed closer connections with people and with families as a whole. Everybody just knew that they had a place in our home. And it was a whole family situation. 
it wasn't just that, you know, he was bringing them home and I was cooking and the kids left along. Like it was something that the kids were all involved with also. They got to know the students. The students knew them. They were proud to be Rabbi Symes's kids. We really, really felt like we were making a difference in our lives. Like we were becoming enriched from it and in theirs. You know, one Shabbos afternoon, my husband came home from Shul. He said, you know, Shane, though, the Rav gives a drush in between Mincha and Marev, Shalashudah's time. And the teenage boys, they're not interested in a drush. Can I bring them home for Shalashudah's? I was like, sure, bring them home. Every Shabbos, Shabbos afternoon, he'd like make a motion with his hand. And like the boys would know they would just like follow him home. They would sit at the table and they would choose with my husband. We called them our boys. Our house was open. I would wake up Shabbos afternoon and I wouldn't know who would be sitting on my couches, you know, with the boys sitting on the couches eating Twizzlers was, you know, my kids' friends were over. We felt like we were really, really making a difference. And then our kids got older. We had more children, Bar Hashem. I was expecting our ninth child. And we had to make a decision because as much as Ottawa had high school, when we first came, when my oldest daughter was in seventh grade, the girls' high school closed down. Oh, I was like, Hashem got me here. (laughs) You wanted me here. (laughs) Okay. Now what? Oh, when she was in eighth grade, we had for school for her and the choices were location or family. At that point, location went out. She went to Montreal, which was two hours away. She boarded during the week by a, a lovely, lovely family that we became very, very close to. And she came home for Shabbos. And then came time for our next daughter to go to school. She was graduating eighth grade. And again, do we send close to Montreal where our other daughter was, or do we send to family? And at that point, my sister and brother-in-law had moved to Rochester, New York. They'd already lived there for about a year or so. My brother-in-law is the principal of the girls' high school in Rochester, Ora Academy. So, right. So we had to make a decision. Okay. Family, close to home. For various reasons, family won out, and we decided Malka was going to go to Rochester for high school. So it was the last, it was June 20, like the Shabbos of June 19, 2020. It, Malka had already had her graduation, and Over Academy was having their graduation on the following Sunday. We decided it would be a good idea to spend time as a family with my sister. My kids had finished school. My husband was still working, still had a few more days left of school. He was usually very, very, you know, into preparing and, you know, working on school. But he was, you know, almost on vacation. It was those last few days when the kids have, you know, a foot and a half out the door. Right. So he was, you know, he was less pressured. And we said, you know, let's go for Shabbos. See the community. Let her get to meet some of the girls that are going to be in her class. And it'll be like an early start to summer. Our son Shmuley decided he didn't want to come. He stayed home for Shabbos at a friend, and it was my husband and I and the, I guess, seven kids. Shabbos was nice. Shabbos was uneventful. We went to the graduate. It was the drive from Montreal to that, from Ottawa to Manhattan. So can't so, talk. Yeah. So Ottawa to Rochester is four hours. Oh, not so bad. It's not bad in terms of driving. In terms of like public transportation, it was very circumventous. It was like getting them home from Rochester was always a challenge because there was a bus to other parts, like to upstate New York, Ogdensburg, New York, which is just before the border. You have to drive like an hour to there. And it, it wasn't, it's not as close when you're taking public transportation. Okay. And we actually went from Ottawa. We went to Montreal Thursday night to pick up Asna, who was finishing up her finals. And then we left Friday morning from Montreal 
to Rochester so Asna could come with us. Okay. Okay. So it's late Sunday afternoon, graduation's over, we spend time with the family and, you know, we're making plans for the rest of the summer. That summer was supposed to be the summer that my husband was taking a road trip with the kids. He had decided that he had always wanted to take the kids back home to see St. Paul. Mm. I had been there with him when our oldest was six weeks old, but the other kids hadn't been and I had never been there after that. He wanted the kids on a road trip, you know, show them home, show them everything. I was expecting September, Rosh Hashanah time. My doctor said I couldn't go. So I was going to stay home with the youngest kids and he was going to go. So everyone's making plans, you know, telling about that trip. And then I was going to stay home with the little kids and maybe meet him in Rochester at the end of the trip. You know, we had, he was going to learn with my brother-in-law, you know, in Yeshiva, he was going to come into New York for a few days planning our summer. And then on the way home, we're on the road and you just says to me, you know, Shane, it's getting late. I should probably dive in Mincha now. Let's pull over. So we pull over at Maddiedale. That's near the Syracuse airport, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from Rochester. And we pull off onto the side of the road into a parking lot and he gets out of the car to dive in Mincha. I didn't know then that that would be the last time that he would ever stand on his two feet again. I had no idea. He comes back to the car. He says to me, Shandel, you know, I have a headache. Can we switch? Can you drive a little bit? I'll rest. And then we'll switch. We have, you know, about three hours left or so. Figured fine. You know, no problem. I'll take over. So we're driving up Highway 81, which anyone is familiar with that route. It goes upstate New York. It goes to the Thousand Islands to get into Canada. And it's getting darker. We're in the car, you know, imagine a bunch of kids in the car, everyone's, you know, schmoozing, screaming a little bit, singing a little bit, you know, gnashing. And then my son calls, you know, whatever family road trip, you know, drama, a bunch of kids in the car for, you know, more than an hour. There's bound to be some, you know, he said, she said, poke me, poke her. You know? <laughs> and then it's getting darker. My son calls on the phone just to see, you know, where are we? When are we come home? How is Shabbos? So we tell him, you know, the sign says 20 miles to Canada. So 20 miles to the border, and then we're an hour and a half from the border. So we'll be home, depending on how long the line is at the border to show our passports, declare ourselves, you know, two hours or so. It's like, okay, fine. You know, they're talking. And then I start noticing like these shadows, like in the road, it, it was dark already. And there's no lights. It's very, very dark. You're headed north. And I thought I saw something in the road, but I wasn't sure. So I'm like, Yelling, Yehuda, Yehuda, do you see that? Do you see anything? And he's like groggy because his head hurt and he had like dozed off. And he's like, I don't see anything. I'm like, I think it's a deer. I'm pretty sure it's a deer. Oh my gosh, yes, it is a deer. What do I do? There was a deer in the middle of the road. Wow. And I was like, I heard all these horrible stories about what happens when a deer comes through a windshield, when you're driving highway speed and this huge animal comes through and I wanted to protect my family. So I figured I better do anything I can to avoid the deer coming through the windshield. And I, you know, I turned the car and the deer was still there. You know, the expression, you know, deer in the headlights, it's true. They freeze. Like they literally, like it just stood. I'm honking the horn. I'm turning the wheel. And it's just there. It wasn't going away. At one point I felt like, you know, from turning right, left, you know, hard, I felt like the car was tipping. I thought we were going to capsize. I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to turn. But the next thing I knew, I was sitting upright in the car and I said to myself, oh, I guess we hadn't flipped after all because I was sitting upright. But I didn't realize that we had flipped multiple times and we were now luckily right side up in a ditch perpendicular to the side of the road. 
We had left the road completely. The deer was gone. Very quickly, the, the highway was flooded with lights. There had been a driver behind us. There was a car behind us who saw what happened and called 911. And, you know, they they came really, really quickly because by the time, you know, we were getting ourselves out of the car, it, it looked like daytime in the middle of the highway, red lights, white lights, everything. It was just blazing with all kinds of ambulances, fire trucks, police cars, you name it. And meantime, our kids are like, you know, getting each other out of the car. They were all in seatbelts, car seats, booster seats, whatever, whatever age appropriate restraint they were supposed to be in. And one of my kids is yelling, mommy, mommy, it's a nace. It's a nace. We're all okay. It's all okay. We're going to have to have a suda soda one day. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a nace. It's a nace. But I didn't realize at that point what a nace was because the car was right side up and I walked out of it. Right. And the kids were all walking out of it. So, okay, you know, yeah, nice. We had a car accident. We're okay. Meantime, my husband, like I walked over to the front, to the side of the car, to the passenger side. And my husband is there and I'm talking to him through the open window, which I only realized after was only open because it was shattered. There had been a window there before. (laughs) And he's telling me I'm in pain. I can't move. And I said, it's okay. Don't worry. You know, there's emergency personnel here. They're going to come and they're going to help you. It's fine. He's like, but I can't move. I said, yeah, you can't move. You're stuck. It's okay. They're going to, they're going to get you out. Don't worry. And I walked away. Like it just didn't hit me when he said, I can't move. Like yeah, everyone says I can't move. I'm so tired. I can't move, you know? Right. right. So I just, you know, went over to look at the kids. And in the meantime, like, you know, one of the medics come over to me and is asking me if I'm okay. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm okay. Maybe my neck hurts a little bit. And they say, ma'am, are you expecting And I looked at him like horrified that he was asking me such a question. And I'm like, no. And I was due September. I was due Rosh Hashanah. This was the end of June. So it wasn't a question, you know? (laughs) So he's like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, gosh, this man is so nosy. And me and my kids are screaming, honey, mommy, yes, you are. (gasps) I'm like, I am. I'm serious. So I, thought, I thought my poor daughter was going to lose her mind. She's like, mommy, mommy, remember Rosh Hashanah? You're having a baby. You're not going back to work. You're taking off a year to have the baby. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I like, I start looking down to see what I'm wearing and I'm like touching my stomach. Like, and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm having a baby. And they're like, when? And I go, I don't know. <gasps> and they're like, okay, ma'am, we have to take you and get you checked out. And I'm like, no, I'm not leaving my kids in the middle of the highway in the middle of the night. It's like, no. And I, I like, I was in shock. Like I didn't like, I didn't know my own state, but I knew I couldn't leave my kids. And they're like, they got down to me, like, you know, almost like you would talk to like a toddler, like a tantrum, you know, like sat down on the floor, looked me in the eye and said, ma'am, we need you to come to the hospital with us. You need to get checked out. We have to make sure you're Okay. We promise you, your kids will be okay. We take full responsibility for your children. They will meet you there, but you have to come. They're going to come and we will make sure that they are safe. And seeing that I didn't have a choice, I just, you know, let them strap me and, and take me off. So they were at the site for longer than I was. I was pretty much whisked away right away. Soon after, they were divided up into ambulances. They took like some of the oldest kids. I mean, they're all of 15 was the oldest at site. So let's say the 15-year-old and the 13-year-old or 14-year-old with some of the youngest, they divide them up into two ambulances and brought them to Watertown just to like a local, like a community general hospital type of thing. And Baruch Hashem, all of us were okay. One daughter needed like four staples. That's all. 
And they kept asking me about Abba, what, where's Abba? Is Abba okay? Is Abba going to die? And I'm like, why would Abba die? And they're like, but is Abba going to die? I'm like, why? I mean, like I was talking to him, you were talking to him. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to him. Like he's just as alive as the rest of us. Like what? And they didn't believe me. And I kept asking for information about my husband. I kept talking to the nurses, like what's going on. And they kept so saying, what did what other part, like your whole memory came back? Like what, what happened to that? How come you forgot that you were pregnant? I was in shock. My, my mind just shut down. My mind just shut down, but I slowly came back. By the time I got to the hospital, I remembered very clearly that I was. Oh, pregnant. so it was like, a, okay. That was like an immediate, like I didn't have a concussion or anything. I didn't, not, you know, like it was just like within the initial moments of the accident. Like I didn't even remember like the car turning over, the car spinning. There's just. I think what, I mean, shock, I think is like, you know, Hashem's way of the body, just not having to process too much at one time. So it like cut, it just shuts down certain things that are just too much. Right. I need to, you know, deal with and just deal with like, what's most important right then, I guess. So finally, one of the nurses said, okay, yeah, we have some news for you about your husband. I said, okay, what is it? And they said he has a spinal cord injury. And at that point, I didn't know very much about spinal cord injury. I I knew that it meant that there would be a problem with walking. I didn't know everything else that entails. So I looked at her and I said, can he walk? And she looked down at the floor and she hesitated. She shook her head and she said, no, no, he can't. And at that point, even if I was, you know, naively unaware of everything that paralysis entails, that was still big enough that my husband would never walk again. You like believed her? You weren't, you didn't go into denial about like, no, what do you mean? He's going to get better. Of course, temporary. You just accepted it. No, I think at that point, I didn't know enough. Like she just knew he had a spinal cord injury and he couldn't walk. That's all. You know, I didn't. I hadn't seen him yet. I hadn't spoke to any of his doctors yet. I was in Watertown. Meantime, he was being airlifted. They got a helicopter. To oh, wow. They had to use the jaws of life, which is like a huge crane, like a huge metal machine to saw the, the car in half. Wow. Car. They wow. Out of the car. And especially since he, that he couldn't move, they had to make sure that, you know, they didn't cause a spinal cord injury if there already was one not to make it any worse if there was one. So he was airlifted by a helicopter to Syracuse, practically back where we came from, because they have a trauma center. Wow. So I didn't know to question anything yet. You know, that wasn't until I left. They were keeping me in Watertown until they knew where my husband was going and what the situation was. And then I ended up getting transferred down to Syracuse. so I could be in an attached hospital to where he was. So he was in the Syracuse Upstate University Trauma Center, and I was in Krause Hospital, which specializes in neonatal care, because they were afraid that I was going to go into premature labor and have a go. When I asked her, and she told me that he couldn't walk, and at that point, I had two choices to make, and I had to decide. Choice number one seemed to be my best option, just completely shut down in denial like you said (laughs) it's never happened and go to sleep put the pillow over my head put the blanket over my head for a very long time and wake up when it was all over right 
something very, very tempting, actually. Yes, I'm sure. On the other hand, I had seven kids on the other side of the screen in the ER waiting for me, a son at home and an unborn. And I felt like I didn't have that luxury (laughs) of shutting down and saying goodbye to it all because I had kids who were counting on me. Right. Somebody needed to be there for them. And if it wasn't going to be my husband and I didn't know what that meant or what he could be able to do or what function, at least temporarily, it had to be me. And I think that day that I chose the harder route (laughs) is when the journey really began, right? That was when it all began because you have to keep on going. And there are days that are hard. And there were days that were, especially in those initial days, that were brutal, just brutal. And you want to shut down and you want to just wait for it to all go away and just go away yourself, but you can't. (laughs) And yes, I'm not going to say that I never got upset. You know, I got upset plenty. There were a lot of, lot of tears, a lot of crying in those initial days, weeks, months, you know. Crying by yourself or crying with your husband? Some of both. I, I think at the beginning, once I was taken down to Syracuse, I was on a stretcher. He was on a stretcher. He was being wheeled in for emergency surgery. And I got to see him for a few minutes. And after that, he was really intubated. Like we didn't do the crying together part till a little bit later because surgery, he was in the ICU. And so it was a lot of crying by myself at the beginning um, with family and just trying to sort it all out because again, we were technically in the same hospital, but I didn't get to see him for a couple of days after the surgery because I was hooked up. I was being monitored for the baby. And then I would go and spend time with him in the ICU. I was in the hospital for eight days. He was in the ICU for a total of three months. But after five weeks, we were flown back to Canada to be taken care of in Canada. Insurance said it was cheaper Uh, to meet us in our home country than out of country. And as soon as he was, you know, stable enough to fly, they kicked us out pretty much. So my kids stayed by my sister in Rochester. My parents came up, my siblings came up, my husband's siblings came up, you know, immediately, like everyone just came. What about your in-laws? Were they still alive? So no, my in-laws passed away years ago. My mother-in-law passed away when my husband was about 18. And yeah, I never met her. And my father-in-law passed away when I was pregnant with my second. So he had been oh, wow. He had been gone for a long time. But his sisters came, two from Eritrea, one from Chicago. They came with spouses. And within hours of the of the accident, all hands were on deck. I mean, like all, you know, family members just came and some took care of the kids, some to you who does some to me. There was everyone and everything and all kinds of, you know, the beaker columns and whatever, whatnot. It, it, it was a huge, which is, it was a huge project. I don't know, project is not the right word, but you're dealing with a very, like a very traumatic injury and a family and out of town, ta- like, you know, not in our hometown. It was just, there was a lot. I mean, you know, we have such a car set over forever grateful for, you know, Rochester, Syracuse, like, I don't know, Toronto, like, I, I mean, worldwide, Ottawa, but like within, hours of people finding out that like everyone was rallying, rallying around us. And we really felt that warmth. We felt that support. And to be frank, we couldn't have done it without it. We wouldn't have sure. the story 12 years later, 
if not for all of those people. And even now, I don't even know ha- the half of what people did. You know, wow. just, we made a Sheva Brachas for a girl of a family that we're very close to in Ottawa. She just got married like a week and a half ago and she was having her last Sheva Brachas in New York. We made a Sheva Brachas for her. And her mother was like telling me some things that happened that summer that I had no idea. I said, like, I wish, I mean, there are things that I know that even still, once I know, like, I can't possibly thank everyone enough. Right. Thank somebody for that. But I said, I like all these behind the scenes stories. I have no idea. So yeah, it's been a journey. And I like really on a dime, you know, like just, we went from being, you know, my husband said like at the top of the world, you know, feeling accomplishing and growing and you know, he wants to be an Evan Hashem and how is he going to serve Hashem? And he found the way, you know, he found what he was good at and he was using his talents to, you know, to serve Hashem and to make a difference in others' lives and gone, like completely paralyzed, like from the shoulders down, like he's like, he cried, you know, how am I going to be an Evan Hashem now? What am I supposed to do now? I used to think like teaching in the classroom was where it was at. Now what? And you know, we cried to Rebbeim, like, what? You know, like, this all is going to stop. Like, what do we do now? And what does Hashem want? And what's, where do we go from here? And, you know, lots of chizuk and lots of crying and lots of kind of, you just have to wait and see how it develops. They gave us, you know, words of chizuk, but there was no an- no answers of what's going to be from now. We kind of had to wait to see what would happen. And, you know, after the three months in the ICU, when he spent six months in rehab, And the rehab center said, you know, you have to have peer support, speak to people in the rehab center, become friends with them. You know, you have so much in common. You both have spinal cord injuries, you're in wheelchairs and like, but we don't, you know, like find us another rabbi with nine kids, you know? Right. (laughs) You know, that one fell off the roof or that one had a motorcycle. That one, there was nothing else in common. The way we were living our lives before, during and after for no resemblance to most of those people. We had therapists that told us that, first of all, people in my husband's injury level, C4, C5, which is pretty high, most of them don't even make it. Like quadriplegics that you know are lower. So I thought really? injury, yeah. So C5, C6 is just a bit lower, but every inch, every centimeter, every vertebrae makes a difference in what the body can recover, what it can do, and the health ramifications. So my husband's injury level affected his diaphragm. Diaphragm affects your breathing. He was susceptible to numerous, numerous pneumonias. He had, he had pneumonia so many times and of the lungs. And ultimately he passed away from pneumonia. The last, you know, two and a half years of his life, he was again on a, on a respirator, living at home on a respirator with a feeding tube because his lungs just, they couldn't anymore on their own. So one second. So right after the accident, he was, he was able to talk, right? So for the first, within the first three months of the accident, he was on a respirator and they were working on weaning him from the respirator. So for the first six weeks, at least he couldn't talk. No, he would have to use like an eye gaze, like we would make letters or we would guess what he was trying to say. It was awful. It was just awful. Communication was awful. And then once they started being able to wean him and he could go for longer periods of time, on, you know, like we'd say court where they would, you know, oh, take out the respirator and, and put the plug in so that he could get air up and down. Then he was able to like learn how to talk again. So it was a while until he could actually communicate 
like that. But Baruch Hashem, once you know, he was totally weaned from the respirator, he was able to talk, he was able to eat. Cognitively, he was completely there. And I think that for me was a lifesaver, like two things. Like I thank Hashem for not making me a widow on the side of the highway. That he survived the accident was really a bracha. He had six and a half, almost seven years past the accident that he that he lived for. And the fact that his mind was there and he was able to still communicate and able to still talk and able to still be who he was although it looked different. And that was something that we tried to focus on. It might look different, but it's still the same. And we tried to keep things as the same as possible, that our goals were still the same. The roles were still the same with modifications, of course, but we didn't want that to be taken away from us as well. We felt like whatever we had control over, whatever we can still do the same or as much the same, we were going to try for that because the goal was still serving Hashem. How are we going to do that? And it took time. He wanted to go back to the classroom. He tried a couple of times. It took a lot of energy from him. It was also complicated with the care that he needed, being able to get out of the house. So he did a little bit here and there. He started speaking a little bit on Skype before Zoom days when Skype was such a thing. Right. Um, Skype things that were well received. We were able to slowly, we, we actually, we made a trip to Montreal for my daughter's graduation. He spoke there. We made a trip back to Rochester. He spoke there. Like slowly, like being able to share his Torah and to share his chizok and to share his story with others was giving him chizok and was giving him a meaning to what we didn't understand. And it was actually a, a close friend of the family whose son became very close to us. And we had a relationship with, he used to come to us with his friends for Shabbosim. His parents came to us, you know, for Shabbos meals and stuff, whose mother said, why don't you start a blog? We didn't know what a blog was. <laughs> so right. she, she explained, you know, you could, you write on it and you share your thoughts and well, how do you do that? And she knew how, because she, she's like cooking or something. So she has some kind of like cooking blog or recipe blog or something. So she's the one who actually set up my husband with his blog. He came up with his name, Rolling Rabbi, because he was a rabbi on wheels and because he rolled with the punches, he liked to say. And it gave him a new forum. It gave him a purpose. It gave him a meaning to share and to expound on what he was going through and what the lessons that he was learning from it that he wanted to share with other people. And we used to joke, you know, we thought he'd be a teacher in a classroom. And now he's worldwide. The blog really opened it up to people all over the world. And, you know, then he saw like 800 downloads or something in the first week. And after that, it just like soared yeah. like crazy. Yeah, It just, it's unbelievable. Like I could go on the stats online, like I go behind the scenes and see like literally Timbuktu, you know, like Haiti, like, I don't know, like Croatia, like you could see the countries that people have read on read that you know who have hit on it and read it it just wow you know hungary thailand japan i i don't know like i think that there's not not a country that's not on there the list is so long and it gave him so much chizuk and for him it gave him chizuk and it gave me chizuk to see that he could still be productive that he was still doing the things that he loved and was good at Wow. Wow. So what happened when he was Nifter? Was that like 
losing him all over again? Or you really kind of lost part of him by the accident? So really, there were several stages of loss. I don't know how many. I lost track. Because at the initial accident, I lost anything that he could have done like that afternoon. He couldn't do anymore. Right. Right. The afternoon he was driving, he was getting in and out of the car. You know, we were talking and, you know, we were making plans and then boom, he was incapacitated. So that was a loss, but we also didn't know. We knew that there was going to be a loss and we didn't know though how much of a loss that would be. Like, where would this take us in terms of, you know, one doctor, like one doctor pretty much wrote him off. And said, you know, how you see him now, that's the way he's going to be for however long he manages to live. Another doctor was a little bit more caring and said and asked us, you know, what is his profession? We said, well, he's a teacher. He's a father. He's a husband. He's like, he can do all of that. As long as you didn't tell me he was a truck driver, he could do all of that. As long as annual labor, you know, he could do all of that. And that really gave us hope because, okay. We still have our husband, father, teacher, brother, son, you know, uncle. We still have him. And I felt like I had him, you know, like in, in many ways I did have him. There was a loss to like, and there was a readjustment of certain things that he used to do that I had to either take over or get other people to do things that normally you don't even think about that he could have done himself that he can't do now. So there was that part of a loss, including others in the caregiving was a loss was also that, that that was a big challenge because he was so dependent on others and I couldn't be his caregiver 24/7 so that was a loss and then we kind of got to after a while we got to a normal as you would say you know like and then you know normal was never really normal but it was our reality so right. they after the accident we were and after you know 3 months in ICU and 6 months in rehab center and he came home our home was not accessible. So he was limited to like two rooms of the house. We knew we had to move. It took time to make that happen. So there was nothing normal about that, you know? Right. And right. You know, when we bought their accessible home, the kids were like, you mean Abba could actually come to the dining room on Chavez? Like we can eat in the dining room. We don't have to eat in the family room. Like we did everything in the family room because that was the only room that he could access. So that became our new normal. And, you know, there were different times where he spent sometimes more time in a hospital setting than at home. So we had like our hospital routine and our home routine. When Abba's home, we ate supper in the kitchen. When Abba was in the hospital, I picked up the kids from school and we ate supper in the hospital. So there was this ever evolving normal and figuring out what he can do and growing into that. And then unfortunately, there were times where after even a short time, if he was unwell, it was like one step forward, four steps back. Anytime he went into the hospital, that put him, you know, it's setback. And he would have to work harder than the first time to regain what he had already gotten back. And as time went on, it was less easy for him to regain. Those wow. Things. And even at one point, he coded and they discovered that he had too much carbon monoxide. Like he had, like his oxygen levels are okay, but there was too much carbon monoxide because of the diaphragm and he needed a BiPAP at night. So that was, again, like I had finally gotten used to being able to talk to him whenever I wanted. And then here it was like 
I don't know, a year or two later. And, you know, at night I'm going to have to put a BiPAP on him and there, that was it. There it goes, you know, there it goes conversation. And we got used to that. And then it was just, there were so many parts of loss that when he was, I guess you would say finally nifter, it was kind of the elephant in the room. Like it was, as things got closer to the end, as time went on, it wasn't a matter of if, it was more of a matter of when. Like at the beginning, you know, once we got through the initial trauma and he was safe, he, he was okay. Like we weren't scared for his life. I mean, officially, halakhically, he was a chol ashiyesh sakana. Like he was right. all together of, you know, whatever he needs, Shabbos, no Shabbos, anything is okay. Right. We weren't scared. You know, right. regular day, I wasn't nervous that he wouldn't wake up in the morning. I wasn't nervous that like, if I left the room, something would happen closer to the end. It was more of a reality or, you know, like after different times, it, it was, I mean, there were times where he, you know, too many near, near death. I mean, he had coded a few times. So like at that point, you're already like, oh my gosh, plenty. Like we, he, we got a phone call. My oldest daughter was engaged and we were out shopping and we got a phone call from a caregiver that my husband was turning blue and they called paramedics and they were on the way to the hospital. And in my head, I'm cheshbening, are we still going to be in Shloshim by my daughter's chasana? Wow. If this was the time, you know? Right. It wasn't the time, but that's how my mind raced. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it was like, oh my gosh, it was hard. And then after it was just like quiet after, like, it was like, this was like the worst that could happen. And it happened. So right. Like, you know, you're like, can't face the worst. It's like waiting for the other shoe to fall. The shoe fell. And it was still, I'm saying it, but now it was reality. Like all those other, like the ups and the downs of, is this the last time? Is this not the last time? It's like, he coded, will they get him? It's the 24 hours. We passed the 24 hours. Like, so then you So just, was there any relief? Oh, if you knew that it was not a matter of if, but when, and there's so many ups and downs, is there any like, kind of like, not even relief, but like sort of like lightening of the shoulders. Like you're not carrying such a heavy burden anymore. There was a lightening of the shoulders. Like if the phone rang, I didn't care. Like, you know, anytime the phone rang, it was like, oh my gosh, you're tense. Like you're saying like the low- lowering of the shoulders. Cause like your shoulders are up in your ears, like right. holding your breath, like, okay, waiting for it, something to happen. And it doesn't, or is it, or will it? And the last couple of weeks, you know, I mean, medically speaking, we knew that it was just a matter of time. So I guess, I don't know if you say it's a relief to know he wasn't suffering anymore. It was a relief to know that we did whatever we could, but, but this was it, right? So there was the grief of, but now he's gone. Like, and there was a certain point in time where even when he was so compromised, like at the very end on the respirator and like, I knew things were going down. I was like, I don't care. I don't care. Even if you do nothing, even if you just sit in your chair, ask your respirator for the next, you know, 60 years, I'm good with that. Just be here. Right. Really? Really? At one point, I was like, as long as he's here, just don't leave. Wow. But it just no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> but then, you know, like, then at the same time, it's like, is it for me or is it for him? You know, like, what? I want him here because I don't want him to go. But at one point, is it, like, enough for him to be here? Right? Did you ever give him permission to go? That's a hard one. When the numbers were going down. You did. When the numbers were going down and the nurse quietly tapped me on the shoulder and pointed to the machines and she said, 
the numbers are going down. At that point, I, I did tell him, you worked hard enough. You have a lot of scar. Go get your scar. Yeah, I did at that point. I feel like be, besides that he left nine children, his accomplishments were done through such hard work that he left them such a strong, strong, strong legacy. He's not just going to be carried on through his kids. Like everything that he was is really going to be carried on through them. Does that make sense? Totally. I think, I mean, the subtitle of the book is called The Power of Perseverance because nobody, nobody, not even me, who I think, you know, pushed him also, and he pushed himself. But I think we, you know, it was a joint effort, I think, but not even me at the beginning, for sure. Like if he would have just been happy to sit on the side in his chair, I think everybody would have been fine with that in a certain respect, because you have a man who's a quadriplegic and you ask him to do something, right? And he says, I can't. Guess what? He wasn't lying. He couldn't. Right. <laughs> right. So if a man who can't do something says, I can't, you're like, you're right. You can't. But what he did, despite the I can't, and the fact that he didn't let the I can't stop him, he could have very easily done zero. But he said, anything I can do, I am going to do. To the point where even if like a caregiver was dressing him or if I was dressing him, he would like move out his arm, like what, four inches, five inches, whatever. I forget what, like the longest range he was on the best of times, how far out he was able to move his arms. He said, I'm not just going to sit here passively let somebody dress me. If there's any way I can dress myself, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a participant in that. You know, one of his goals was being able to turn pages so he could daven and learn by himself. He didn't have to sit there and call someone every time he needed to turn a page. He had a goal of bringing his hands, which were flat on his lap, higher and higher and higher, not to feed himself, which is what I wanted him to do because it would make my life easier and it would make getting caregivers easier and or the times of day that we would need caregivers. That didn't interest him. He said he wanted to be able to move his hands up so he could say Shema by himself. Wow what it was, you know, and we said, you know, just like Hillel is like nobody could say, you know, you go up to time, they say, did you learn Torah? No, I was too poor. And they say, well, Hillel was poor. He's nothing. He went up on the roof. You can't say you like we say Yehuda was Mikhaev that I can't. No one, no, you can't say I can't anymore. Like he couldn't. And look what he accomplished with the I can't. Wow. Just that push and that drive to do what he accomplished it was just very validating to me that I got a letter from somebody who's in the medical field and who knows the ins and outs of spinal cord injury and said, just know that he surpassed anything that he surpassed. They wow. expected somebody, what he was able to do from somebody with his injury level and the things that he asked for and the things that he wanted, he outgrew some of those things because he was using them in ways that other people weren't using them. For example, a communication device. Once he was traked again and he wanted to communicate, I wasn't content with the letter board. He wasn't content with the letter board. It was frustrating. It was painful. It, it was just horrible. So I was fighting to get him another communication device. Most people in his position need a communication device for, is for words. Pain, hunger, tired. You know, one word, they would like program words onto the computer, hello, goodbye. But he was using it to type his blog. The blog he wrote completely independently, all on his own. So wow. 
he, when he was able to speak, it was through a voice activated computer. He couldn't use the mouse. He couldn't touch the buttons. Right. Wheel up to the computer. Somebody would help, you know, line up the microphone, turn on the computer, whatever needed that. And then he was off to the races himself. And after I dare someone to take three, you know, two pieces that he wrote, one, one with the eye gaze and one when he spoke and asked someone if, without looking at the date, if they can tell a difference. No one used the device like he used the device. He became the poster child for the rehab center for the communication device because it was just unprecedented. Wow. Wow. Because I have a funny question to ask you now. Okay. <laughs> if that's like a huge lesson that you took away from him, how do you know today when to really say I can't? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear. I think you have to give it your best shot. I think that you really have to evaluate why it is that you're saying I can't. Am I saying I can't because I don't want to? Am I saying I can't because I don't have the physical or mental capacity for that right now, which might be very valid? Or am I saying I can't because I'm afraid of failure? Like, it depends, I guess, where the I can't is coming from. And I don't know, my go-to, if all in doubt, that's Torah. <laughs> That's been my go-to. Like have a love that you have handy that you can call and talk things through and see where it's stemming from because I always felt better knowing that it was on a rub shoulders. <laughs> right. Right. You know? But I think that's it. And yeah, I guess you have to be realistic with your limitations or what something is coming at the expense of. Right. So if I say I can't do something because I have kids at home, I would like to do those things, but is it fair to use my energy? And at the expense of that, my kids need me for certain things still now, right? So I think it depends on where it's coming from. At the second time, when my husband was trying to relearn how to be weaned from the respirator and he couldn't, it was very hard work. It was really very hard. And the doctors were not satisfied that he would be able to do it. There was something also that he had wanted to work on that he actually decided to drop Oh, it was, I know what it was. Not the, not the, not the breathing on his own bed. It was riding his chair. It was after once he was intubated again and he didn't have the energy to move his power chair by himself again. And he really wanted, like he relished that independence so much once he was able to do that. And it was taking a lot out of him. And he said, if it was taking him too much time and it left him too fatigued that it didn't leave him time to spend with the family or enjoy being with the family, he stopped. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So that actually, somebody just reminded me of that like yesterday. I had forgotten about that, but that was like a conscious decision. And he cried. He cried at that loss of, you know, he was human. I think that's what everybody says about him. He was human. And he taught us like through his humanity, through the frailties of the human body, what the human spirit can really do. So you seem like such a positive person. Do you ever like sink into self-pity or no self-pity? Like this is what Hashem gave you and like this is it. I, I, I feel bad for myself many times. I like to think I'm human. I, sure. I do. I mean, there are times that are times that are harder. Sometimes things get overwhelming. You know, it's 12 years later, but my journey is still continuing. I'm just right. without him. Right. Um, so there are times that things do get overwhelming. And but there are a few tips that I learned along the way that I think I really I try to fall back on them. And, 
you know, even if it takes me a little longer to bounce up again, then it's not too long. At the beginning, it took me a little longer to bounce back. And now, you know, I give into it a little bit and then I try to get myself out of it sooner. I love, by the way, what you wrote in the book about when you made your own birthday party. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was just such a like, such a right. good lesson. Like if you're not getting it from anyone, do it yourself and just right. have a good time with it. <laughs> so well, that was it. And then, well, the smart part, the great part was that my kids took over. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was like a little bit of self-pity right there. Right. It was, I guess, two years ago, I would have said, what was I turning 47 or something like that? You know, it's not like, yeah, a, that's what it's like an, an O number or a five number, you know? But I was like, here I am. I'm back in New York. You know, I'm my own again. And it's going to be my birthday. Like, and like, let's kind of ignore the birthday, 47, whatever. It's been, I guess at that point, like 10 years after the accident, whatever it was. It took a few days of like feeling like I was entitled, you know, you know what, that's it. Rocket. We're just going to do this. And I told my kids and it turns out they were planning me a surprise party. So now it's become a tradition. Oh yeah. Now now I expect it. Now they know they're in trouble. You know, they did it already two or three times already. So now they're. That's very cute. Yeah. So I guess just before we end, I'm like wondering if you have any tips or anything that you would want to leave off with for those that don't have a husband. And I'm not saying the word widow on purpose, because I think that's like a bad word for a lot of widows. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know where I am with that today. But for a while, I was like, I'm not a widow. My husband's just not here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I think that it's a process. And like you said, I've, I, it's 12 years since the accident, five years since he passed. But I feel like I've had some of the 12 years to process what came after in the next five years. So it's, in certain ways, it feels like he's been gone for longer. Sometimes it feels really short that he's been gone. It depends on the day, really, you know, how long or how short it is. I think that everyone has their own journey and everyone has their own coping mechanisms and what works for them. So while it is nice and important to have a support system of people that, you know, went through similar situations, that's good. I'm saying I have other friends who I met because of my situation, like through Samhainu, for example, that I connect with very well, whether we're the same ages or not. On the other hand, people have different histories from before their husband passed away and people have different histories with their families. And so it's not always the same ages of the children make a difference where, you know, how long you were married for makes a difference. I think also the circumstance of passing also makes a difference. So it's important to have support from where you can get the support, but at the same time, let the journey be yours. Like it has to come from within. Nobody could tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing, what you can and can't be doing, or what you should and shouldn't be ready for. Because they're not you and they're not living it the same way as you. And there's even people who get you, they're not you. So we can, like, I can relate to others on a certain level, but it does stop at another level. Right. So what works for them, I listen. And if it resonates with me, then, you know, I can implement that if it works. But I think everybody has to really find what works for them. You know, for me, keeping busy works. Sometimes I make myself too busy and then it backfires. <laughs> that, that's where the overwhelming part comes. You know, like 
oh. So then I, then I talked it over with a friend. They're like, yeah, if it's getting to the point of like you're dreading the things that you like, then no, you know, you you overdid it right then and there. So I think there's a lot of that finding you know, things that I'm good at, things that I enjoy doing. Having an outlet is also very important, whether for me, it's teaching, sharing my story, baking, you know, giving things, you know, creativity, doing things like I, I could go into Michael's and like, I'm in like a heaven and I'm like looking around, oh, I could do that. I could do this. My brother just bought my girls a cricket machine. I'm like going gaga, you know, oh, could we, <laughs> you know, so I think I rate my mood on like how creative I'm feeling. If like, there's no creativity flowing, like everyone beware, Shangle's in trouble. <laughs> kind of thing. So I think, I think there's a lot of that. And I just, I guess two messages, if I could just leave off with two I'll try to make them brief if you're in a rush for time. Two things that I heard earlier in my journey that stick with me now that were pretty cerebral at the beginning, but I feel like I've made more peace with them. And there's so many levels of acceptance that I feel like I'm at a greater level of acceptance. Number one is that in really short, that before our before our neshama is put into our body, our neshama is showed what our life is going to be like and everything that we are going to be doing in our life. And at that point, when our neshama is still up in Shemayim and it's surrounded by Ruchnius and it's not impeded by, you know, Bechira, by choices or things that seem tantalizing or tempting or more exciting, it knows what's real and it agrees to that, and so to speak signs up for that. And it agrees to be put into that body because it knows that this is the mission that it needs to become successful and to be, to reach this level of perfection and to have its purpose in this world. And when I heard that, even though it's something that I had heard, you know, many times you you hear that growing up all the time, it just hit home when I heard it. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, I did sign up for this because for months I had been telling people I did not sign up for this. I did not sign up for this. This is not what I'm asking for. This was not on my bucket list of things. No one asked me if I wanted to be the wife of a quadriplegic. This is not what I signed up for. And then I realized that, oh my gosh, I did. And it was actually very empowering because I realized that it wasn't something that happened to me. It was something that I chose. And if it's something that I chose, then I have the power to choose how I deal with it and how I react to it. And at that point is when I said, okay, by hook or by crook, it's me against quadriplegia. And I didn't know what that meant, but over the years, it had more meaning for me. So that that's one thing that I keep in mind. I did sign up for this. And secondly, there's a, a quote from Rashi, Rav Tov Hatzafun Lecha, I have something better for you. When Moshe Rabbeinu was davening to go into Eretz Yisrael, and he wanted, he davened over 500 times for permission to enter. And Hashem kept telling him no. And he's like thinking to himself, you know, I'm imagining Kaviachal as if Moshe's thinking to himself, what do you mean? Like Eretz Yisrael, it's the best thing that could happen to me. That's like, that's what Hashem promised us for decades through the Avos, that this is our land. I want to walk that land. I want to be in that land. I want to do mitzvot in that land. I want to do, learn Torah in that land. And Hashem said, no. I have something better for you and you have to stop, like stop davening. It's enough. You might think you want to go in, but you can't. And that also like the timing just hit home for me. It's like, 
You think you know what you want, but I have something better for you. I said, Hashem, what do you mean? Wife of quadriplegic? No, <laughs> no, thank you. I, I didn't ask for that. You know, that wasn't the life I signed up for. I have a better idea. How about my husband walks and he talks <laughs> and we have guests in our house every Shabbos. That's what I wanted. And Hashem said, no, I have something better for you. And in order for you to become the best you that you can possibly be, I know what you need. And this is what you need. And that also was just empowering that, you know, I don't always know what I need. I know what I want, but it's not always what I need. And I think those are two thoughts that, you know, ongoing have, I repeat to myself often, and it definitely keeps me going. And when I get down, I just have to remind myself of that. And that's why one of the reasons I, when people ask me to speak, I do speak because it helps me. It gives me that like, you know, it gives me that boost from, from time to time in between as my journey continues that I have to remind myself of that. Like, yeah, I signed up for this and there's something better in store. That is like, I think so powerful and so beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> so I just really want to thank you so much for coming out. And I just want to also put out there to the listeners, if they have any questions or comments, they could reach out on the website zahavra.org. And I'm sure you wouldn't mind if someone wants to get in touch with you through me or whatever. Sure, you could forward it to me. Okay, so thank you so, so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You have just listened to an episode by Miriam Ribiat. For more episodes or for additional information on future episodes, visit our website, www.chevralomdeymishnah.org or email mribiat.org at chevrolomdemishnah.org.